Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In the early 1920s, two young men named Bill, living in New Orleans' French Quarter, wrote, illustrated, and had published an intellectual private joke they titled Sherwood Anderson and Other Famous Creoles, a gallery of contemporary New Orleans. The authors were Bill Spratling, then a professor at Tulane, later to become a noted designer of Mexican silver, and Bill Faulkner, then a young, self-assured fellow from Mississippi working on a drinking habit, later to be Nobel Laureate of the American South. This private joke provides, as Spratling later commented, a mirror of our scene in New Orleans, and John Shelton Reed has taken full advantage of said mirror. He's the William Rand Kennan Jr. Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where, among many other things, he also co-founded the Center for the Study of the American South and the journal Southern Cultures. In addition to being a sociologist, uh, even a retired one, you can't apparently stop being one, he's a witty and stylish essayist and a good man to have a conversation with, as I think you'll agree, in about 40 minutes. John, so good to talk to you. Thank you, Al. Thanks for all those kind words. Well, all right. Well, we I kept them to as, as brief as I could. I <laughs> talk about the Colonel Reed and the this Reed and the all right. But, uh, so D- Dixie Bohemia, a French Quarter Circle in the 1920s, um, so were the it's the result of some lectures you gave at L- LSU, is, or was it? Yeah, that's right. I was invited uh, a while back to give the. Uh, 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 this series of lectures that LSU that's been going for 50 years or so, and the nice thing about it is you, you know, once you agree, you can talk about anything you want. <laughs> Unless you really disgrace yourself, LSU Press will publish the results. <laughs> as, far, as far as I know, in uh, 50 plus years, they've never uh, refused one. But <laughs> anyhow, I, I I could pick my subject, and uh, I picked the subject that let me go spend a lot of time in New Orleans. <laughs> Doing research, yeah, doing serious yeah. primary research. 
Yes. Uh, oh, yeah, every day. At Galatoire's and, 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 <laughs> such, and such like. Uh, you, you understand. Yeah. Um, so Sherwood Anderson and other famous Creoles, you say that they're, uh, in a, first of all, there's a joke to the title. Um, but first, yes. even before we get to that, who is Sherwood Anderson? Can you tell a benighted 21st century audience? Yeah, isn't that a, 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 it's a, it's a shame that I have to ask that question, but you do. Yep. A uh, hundred years ago, uh, or so, uh, Sherwood Anderson was being given uh, titles like the Dean of American Literature. He was possibly the best known and certainly one of the most successful uh, American writers of fiction. Uh, his best known book, probably Winesburg, Ohio. And in the 20s, he moved for a while to New Orleans and became part of this group that I was writing about. Um, at that point, he was at the peak of his career, and he, he really was uh, famous, though not a Creole. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, and I think literary scholars would say now that at that moment, he was probably at the peak of his powers, and he lived a good deal longer and kept writing, but uh, never again anything as good as what he'd written. Mm-hmm. Before that state, anyhow, he, he was a very well-known uh, fiction writer and, and far and away the best known of the crowd I'm writing about. Famous Creoles. What's the joke? Okay. Uh, they took the title. It's not a very funny joke, but they took their title from a book published uh, a year or two before by a Vanity Fair cartoonist, a collection of his caricatures called The Prince of Wales and Other Famous Americans. And, of course, the Prince of Wales wasn't an American. Sherwood Anderson was not a Creole. Uh, as a matter of fact, the 40-some-odd people in there, only two were Creoles, as Creoles understand that word. That is, uh, Louisianans of uh, French or Spanish descent. Hmm. Um, the rest were some of the Louisianans, a good many of them Southerners, uh, but some of them Midwesterners like Anderson, who just happened to wash up in, in New Orleans. So the joke is that... The, Sherwood Anderson was not a Creole, although he was famous. Many of the others, uh, most of the others were not Creoles, and uh, most of them were not famous by any standard. Yeah, One said, you know, a lot of us here are internationally famous locally, which is the <laughs> kind of fame that not many of them had. They were well-known in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. And it, what's interesting also, I think, about the uh, the, the, the suggestion is is that it uh, uses something that's very exclusive, Creoles. Talk about... Um, it is a rather inclusive group um, that that is part of this the social scene. Uh, yes, social uh, it, it is very inclusive in every respect, but but one, and it we'll won. get to that. We'll get to it, that. Yeah, yeah it, it's uh, all ages. I mean, the youngest uh, was a woman of twenty who was a uh, cheerleader at Tulane. <laughs> uh, the oldest, I believe, was Grace King, very distinguished uh, local color novelist and uh, local historian, who was, gosh, I don't know, in her. 80s, probably. Uh, anyhow, there was a considerable range of, of ages, considerable uh, women were well represented, maybe a third of them, uh, I'd have to count, uh, women. Um, some were uh, uh, professional people. The president of Tulane was one of them, a couple of working architects of some distinction. Others were just graduates, uh, recent graduates, or in Marion Draper's case, still an undergraduate at Tulane. Uh, it was a pretty motley crew. The one thing they had in common was that uh, all of them were friends of William Spratlin, I guess, yeah. at least acquaintances of Spratlin. So I, I, we, before we get to the uh, some of the sociolo- sociological point you make early on in the, in the book that I want to touch on, uh, we should 
explain. We know who Bill Faulkner is, although yes. we don't know him. Most of us don't know who he is at this point in his life, which is key. This is sort of a sort of moment where he's left Oxford and it's before he goes back to Oxford. So That's right. what's he written at this time? What's uh, he, what's he very done? little. Uh, he, uh, he, he wrote a poem. He, thought he wanted to be a poet. Uh, and he wrote a poem that was published in a little magazine called The Double Dealer that was part of this scene. Um, it was well well reviewed by his friends. <laughs> uh, Sherwood Anderson uh, was a very helpful mentor to him, encouraged him to write fiction instead. Uh, he wrote a novel called Mosquitoes, uh, which was based on an episode in the in the history of, of this circle. Uh, he had Soldiers Pay, another novel. Uh, so he, he was banging it out. He was uh, sat on his balcony with his typewriter and a glass of corn whiskey, and, and every morning he was he was up there writing. Huh. That's pretty much the uh, the way he the way he did it. Um, yeah, for the rest of his life, yeah. really. Mm-hmm. What what is the um, uh, I'm curious about uh, the well, oh, Bill Spratling. We talk about Bill Spratling. Yeah, uh, Spratling was the other half of this uh, dynamic duo. Uh, he was somewhat older than uh, Faulkner, and in fact, he was Faulkner's landlord in a sense. He, he rented an apartment and then uh, sublet a, a room to, to Faulkner, and they became close friends. They went to Europe together. Uh, they moved around the corner to a different apartment together. But Spratling was, uh, at this point, teaching in the architecture school at uh, Tulane, Although, in fact, he had not actually uh, graduated from uh, Auburn. Uh, he had, uh, had no no degree, but he was a draftsman and an artist. Uh, he was aspiring to be a, a painter and a, a visual artist. He uh, did a lot of sketches of plantation houses and the sketches in this book of his friends. And he painted in uh, Europe when he and Faulkner went over there. Uh, but eventually, uh, he wound up as a, uh, jewelry, a designer of silver jewelry and flatware, which is, at which he was a genius. He was much better at that than he was as a, hmm. as a painter. Hmm. So they're part of this social circle, and you write uh, that um, a social circle almost always exists in symbiosis with one or more institutions, and this one was no exception. Um, right. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, <laughs> let me define what I mean by a social circle. Uh, sure. This was not a group in the sense that sociologists use that word. They didn't all know one another. Uh, even you know, I'm sure that some of them were, had never been in the same room and never were, but they were tied together by a loose uh, network of friendships. You know, they all knew someone who knew someone, and they sort of hung out. Uh, uh, and they all knew Faulkner. For, I mean, Spratling, for starters, and I presume most of them knew Faulkner because he was Spratling's roommate. But uh, this is, uh, when I say they exist with, in connection with some institutions, I mean that some institutions generally bring these people together in the first place uh, and uh, introduce them to one another. Then after they, the circle comes into being, it often produces its own institutions that mm-hmm. uh, you know, attract other people to the circle and keep the circle going. In the case of this one, I don't want to get too boring and sociological. I get this out of the way pretty quickly in the book. But yeah. the case of this one, uh, 
to get a lot of the people had Tulane connections, mm-hmm. Tulane University connections. Some taught there, a good many were graduates of it. The president was, was one of them. Uh, so Tulane was something that a bunch of them had in common, and that's where a lot of them met one another and Spratling. Uh, another thing that uh, pre-existed the circle was the uh, Double Dealer magazine that I mentioned. A couple of young World War One veterans uh, had founded that. It was very much part of the Roaring Twenties in, in uh, New Orleans. It published uh, a lot of uh, a lot of work by some very well-known people, uh, even though it uh, didn't pay its writers. Uh, <laughs> it was re- remarkably good magazine. It was, to be sure, often second-rate work by first-rate people, you know, stuff that people yeah. had in their drawer. But when the Double Dealer wrote and said, do you have anything we can use, uh, they didn't just ignore them. They sent them something out of the drawer. You know, so. huh. Anyway, as I said, it published Faulkner's first uh, piece. It published Hemingway's first piece. Uh, uh, anyway, this, this magazine existed. A lot of people were connected with it, either as writers for it or editors of it. or Somehow or another, uh, they certainly nearly all read it, I'm sure. And you also mentioned that the other institutions are not, not just the t- New York, New York, uh, sorry, the Orleans Times, Picayune, but also the Item, the States. And yeah, there were uh, three, and then uh, for a time, four daily newspapers in New Orleans. It was a very competitive newspaper town. And there's nothing better for writers than a newspaper war. Oh, absolutely, and, and one of the ways they competed was uh, intensive coverage of the local scene. So. Uh, you know, a lot of these people were newspaper people, uh, worked for the newspapers. Uh, a lot of them did freelance stuff for the newspapers. Their friends who did work for the newspapers would you know, send $10 their way to do an illustration or to write a little sketch. Faulkner did a number of sketches for the time speaking. Um, anyway, th- th- this world of journalism uh, was a- as important as Tulane in bringing people into New Orleans, introducing them to one another, uh, getting this circle rolling. Then after the after uh, the crowd had assembled there, and, uh, and other things began to emerge. Uh, some of them founded something called the. Uh, I tried for a good while to get my mouth around the French of this, but yeah. then I learned that in uh, New Orleans they they call it Le Petit Theater. <laughs> it was a, an early community theater that. Uh, uh, a lot of these folks did set designs for them and uh, painted scenery and act, acted in their plays. And uh, a number of them wrote one-act plays that were put on by the community theater. That was part of the, very much part of the scene. Yeah, and the Arts and Crafts Club. That, that uh, may have been the most important uh, thing that these folks created. It, uh, it had a place on uh, Royal Street and offered lessons and uh, a lot of Number of these people taught there were paid to teach there. A uh, good many of them were students there. Uh, they had annual balls, which were uh, costume balls, which were, they know how to throw a party in New Orleans. So these these were great occasions. Uh, I've got most of a chapter talking about uh, these costume balls, mm-hmm. maybe more than they deserve, but they're, they're such fun. They were having fun. It's fun to read about. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these interests, uh, the interests that created these institutions, that perpetuated these institutions, then also created glue for a social circle. That's that's how this thing works. And then it feeds and creates other institutions, which keeps on, as it were, reproducing the circle. Is that the sort of the, the process? Yeah, reproducing it, reinforcing it, bringing in new members. Uh, it just keeps the, keeps the ball rolling. One of the things I, I was curious about, uh, and what may, 
wanted to ask you as soon as I, I read the book and here I have the opportunity is uh, you, you make it clear that so many of them uh, were, they were well-traveled. They had experienced the left bank. They had experienced uh, Greenwich village. Uh, to what sense was this almost like an imitation Bohemia that they were? Creating? <laughs> I think quite often it was a very conscious imitation. Uh, yeah. They liked to compare themselves to the to Greenwich village. And in a way it was a sort of, uh, you know, best pocket uh, Southern version of Greenwich village. Uh, it, it, there were some important differences, but that was plainly the model they had in mind. And, and these costume balls were explicitly modeled on uh, the artist models balls that they used to have in Montmartre. Mm-hmm. They weren't quite as uh, scandalous as those right. French ones, but uh, not bad for a you know, provincial southern city in the 1920s. So uh, who are some other members of the scene? We've got, uh, we've got Anderson, we've got Faulkner, we've got Spratling. Uh, well, I'm trying to think of people who folks might have heard of. And, that that uh, probably is impossible. It may well be. I mentioned Grace King, who was uh, uh, sort of uh, Aminos Grease, uh, whatever the feminine for that is. Um, she, she was a novelist and historian. I mentioned the president of Tulane. Uh, there was a young guy named Hamilton Basso, just fresh out of Tulane, who was working as a reporter went on to become a uh, writer for Time Life and wrote a novel called The View from Poppy's Head that was a considerable success, I think, in the 1950s. Um, There's a guy named Rourke Bradford who uh, did sort of cringeworthy uh, dialect stories (laughs) uh, based on uh, the Bible. Uh, One of his... uh, sets of stories was adapted for the Broadway stage and became, uh, oh, help me, um, I've forgotten the title. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, a Pulitzer Prize-winning Broadway show with, uh, uh, based on the uh, quaint uh, religious views of cast of uh, Southern black folk. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, Rock Bradford has kind of fallen out of favor, but he was he was well-known at the time. Um <laughs> Internationally known locally. Internationally known locally. And actually, with, with that Pulitzer Prize in Broadway, he, he was, you know, there was a demand for this kind of dialect stuff mm-hmm. outside the South as well. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a matter of fact, he tried on a couple of occasions to, to write novels that weren't about uh, rustic and comic uh, black folks. And uh, he was basically, they weren't successful. He was basically told to stick what he was good at. <laughs> Uh, um, Oliver Hazard Perry Lafarge. I, I oh yeah, Lafarge was a anthropologist, as was uh, Franz Blom. They, they, these were two guys at uh, Tulane in anthropology that did really important pioneering work in uh, Mexico with the Mayans. And uh, some of that you mentioned those names in Latin American anthropological circles. Uh, they're, they're they're still uh, well respected. Uh, Lafarge was also a, uh, a writer on the side. He, he was a party boy. I mean, he, he was very much part of this crazed social circle. And to everyone's surprise, he, he eventually produced a novel because a lot of these folks like to talk about their novels and then went out and mm-hmm. drank and danced instead. Yeah. But uh, uh, Lafarge produced a novel uh, sort of on his way out the door. He moved back to... Uh, he, he left uh, New Orleans, went back to New York, New York and eventually wound up in Santa Fe, but uh, he, he published this novel kind of as he left New Orleans and it won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, okay, another one. So, uh, you know, some of these people had uh, 
had real talent, and some of them actually employed that talent. A lot of them wasted it. Uh, this guy named Weeks Hall, who was one of the more one of the stranger and more at this point in music uh, people, uh, he was an artist uh, or aspired to be. He owned a plantation in uh, uh, New Iberia called uh, uh, Shadows on the Tesh, which. Uh, Many people know it's a National Trust house now, mm-hmm. but when he bought it, it, it was a wreck, and he devoted his life to restoring it and bringing mm-hmm. it back to its antebellum glory. It, it uh, had been built by his great-great-grandfather. Anyway, Hall, uh, as I say, was <laughs> colorful <laughs> in, in a uh, great many ways. I was recently in New Iberia, and I went to the bookshop uh, at at shadows on the Tesh, and without identifying myself, I said, do you have a book called Dixie Bohemia? And they said, no, no, we don't. I said, oh, that's funny. I thought Weeks Hall was in it. The lady behind the counter said, he is. Evidently, my treatment of of Hall doesn't meet with approval in in those circles. But uh, I can can live with that. Yeah. Well, Uh, A woman named Genevieve Pito was a... uh, uh, Pianist, concert pianist, uh, uh, had trouble making a living as a concert pianist, so she, for a time, accompanied the fan dancer Sally Rand and uh, wound up on Broadway as a very accomplished uh, uh, adapter and composer for the Broadway stage. Uh, Damn Yankees and a bunch of other uh, Broadway shows you've heard of she worked on. And what the... Um... I could go on. Yeah, we yeah we could go on, go on with many other colorful characters. Um, what uh, I want to get back to the the Maya connection, which I thought said something about New Orleans and its place in the South. But um, what was life like in the quarter back in the twenties? I mean, how was this life of their life characteristic and uncharacteristic of the rest of New Orleans? Right. Well, a lot um, of, a lot of the exoticism to people like Oliver Hazard Perry Lafarge. Uh, right. was just New Orleans exoticism rather than bohemian exoticism. It's an interesting kind of... Yeah, this uh, South Louisiana um, uh, scene is, uh, you know, attracts artists, obviously, and it also attracts uh, writers because there's a colorful uh, life in every... You know, there's folk life, there's uh, sailors, there's all sorts of degeneracy. There's a lot of stuff to write about. Uh, but... At the time of World War One, the French Quarter had become a slum. I mean, it was built by these Creole families before the war, uh, the big war, <laughs> before the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, but a- after after that, they gradually moved out uh, across the to Esplanade Avenue or other neighborhoods, and the houses they built, which is what you see today, uh, became tenements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at 1910, by one estimate, uh, 90% of the quota's population was uh, uh, Italian, mostly Sicilian, uh, poor, uh, often illiterate uh, Italians were uh, brought in. Who, they worked on, originally on the docks, and then a number of them went into uh, uh, open small groceries and produce stands and that, that sort of thing. But you had uh, large families, often with chickens and uh, animals, uh, living in these uh big houses. So it, it was on its way down, and there were serious proposals just to level the place uh, and, and build some, something modern and sanitary. Uh, fortunately, uh, a number of uh, people uh, recognized that there was something there worth saving, and you had this curious uh, convergence. 
parts of society, ladies on the one hand, and uh, artists and writers on the other, who discovered that you could move into this amazingly picturesque place and live very cheaply. Hmm. It was uh, kind of dangerous after dark, but it still is in some places. Uh, but it had the makings of a bohemian. Same story with Greenwich Village, by the way, in North Beach in mm-hmm. San Francisco. I don't know what it is about you know Italian slums that yeah. gives rise to bohemians, but it's actually I have some suspicions about what it is. I, yeah, for what, one thing, what are what is it? Because I, I, I'm I'm from Philadelphia, and yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure well, that South Philadelphia has created this much of bohemia. But sure. Well, for one thing. Uh, Unlike some other ethnic groups I could name, uh, the uh, Sicilians, uh, although they were fairly rigid among themselves, didn't much care what their neighbors did. Hmm. Uh, in fact, they were in New Orleans. They were they were known to be uh, remarkably easygoing on the subject of race. You know, for, uh, uh, so that that was part of the story. Also, they had nothing but contempt uh, for prohibition laws. This was during, during prohibition. So, uh, I mean, you, you could buy the makings for uh, every street corner had a little Italian grocery that was selling uh, flavorings for the raw Cuban alcohol that you could buy elsewhere. And, you know, it was a wide open town as far as liquor went, and it was largely the Italians who made it. So, uh, so I, this was, you know, I, I think you'd have had a rather different experience in a neighborhood populated by Irish or Germans. Yeah. Uh, well, the beer would have been better. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, I hate to trade in stereotypes, but uh, I, I've got some quotes in there from uh, uh, New Orleans Sicilians themselves who have some things to say on the subject. Yeah. What, uh, what, what really, uh, I guess the most interesting and incredible thing to me in the book is, is that no one in the circle that you're discussing seems to like jazz. I, I, I didn't. I, I didn't know what to do with that. Yeah, they, they, it's not that they dislike it. And in fact, they, they went out. Some of them went out and danced to it. But uh, uh, and occasionally Faulkner and some of his friends would go listen to this clarinetist. But the point is, there was this efflorescence of, of jazz all around them. Yeah. Uh, uh, but when they wanted. Uh, music, particularly when they wanted, uh, well, a number of them were classical musicians, and they, they were interested in classical music. If they wanted uh, music from their uh, African-American neighbors, however, uh, they tended to go for uh, the work songs that the uh, stevedores were singing on the docks, you know, or the uh, gospel songs in black churches. In fact, going to black churches to listen to the choir was a, a frequent hmm. occupation of many of these folks. So this, uh, this is like the this is like a folk music division going on at Ur, uh, before Lomax before even you know the Elder Seeger. Yeah, uh, we've got yeah. this intellectuals interested in folk melodies rather than in I don't know what they saw jazz as, but yeah. so the other thing is more I, true. I, 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 you know, a number of these folks, Rock Bradford and uh, a couple of others, uh, wrote novels and short stories about black folk life. You know. Uh, 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 it's it's not easy reading uh, these days. No. It's very con- condescending, but uh, they were sincerely interested in uh, folk ways of of their black neighbors. You know, they they were kind of blinkered in many ways. But uh, one of them, Emmett Kennedy, collected black uh, songs mm-hmm. and did some really valuable work. Even though he collected them in order to put on blackface and perform them, you know, which he did. 
did at Town Hall in New York. Uh, nevertheless, he collected these these songs. Now, I think part of the reason people like work songs and religious songs is that somehow they were seen as more authentic, more uh, yeah. <laughs> more real than, than yeah. jazz, which was kind of throw, throwaway stuff. You know? Authentic, real, true, something like that. Yeah, you, you know, the, the yeah. impulse I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just fascinating to find it here at that time. It's, yes, you know. yeah. Um, so uh, you tried to put this at the beginning and at the end, but you... Uh, the the pointy headed sociology stuff, but this is a this you know this is a podcast called historical th- historical thinking. So, um, okay. what's the sociology of Bohemia? As you go through a sort of you talk about the natural history and lifespan of Bohemia. What, what's the, yeah? What's that's the, the conclusion because yeah. uh, the question arises. You know why why is this not still there? I mean what yeah. what happened to it? Yeah. But it's, it's clear that by 1930 or so, uh, it was over. Um, most of the people I was writing about had left or moved on to other pursuits or, you know, or grown up. Yeah. Uh, it's just six, uh, or, six uh, or eight years. Yeah, uh, and the scene was no longer there, and the quarter was no longer really a place that could give rise to such a scene. And this is not unique to the French Quarter. I mean, the same things happened in New York and, and Paris and London. Uh, what you have is a neighborhood that's sort of run down and cheap and possibly a little scary, but uh, uh, where artists and writers can afford to live, you know, pursue their work, give them stuff to write about often, uh, they uh, begin to rehab the place, you know, uh, uh, fix, fix things up. Other people who aren't artists and writers come in and uh, open shops and boutiques and coffee houses and things like that, uh, supporting bookshops, supporting uh, institutions. Uh, tourists start to show up and look at the artists and writers and drink in the coffee houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tour buses start coming. Uh, a lot of First wannabe th- artists and writers show up. Yeah. They're not really serious about their art, but they like to hang out in coffee shops. The Fohemians, co- the Fohemians you call them. Fo- Fohemians, yeah. <laughs> I didn't coin that phrase, but oh, it's a good one. Too bad. It sounds like you. All right. <laughs> No, I I used it without attribution because I didn't know whom to attribute it to. <laughs> right, yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, uh, anyway, that's that's the kind of folks I'm talking about. Right. And then the uh, old Bohemians start acting like uh, crusty old, uh, you know, veterans of the the Confederate uh, veterans, the sons of Confederate veterans. They're complaining. Yeah, about. they say you know you know it was great before you got here. You know, which is kind of what the Sicilians said when they showed up. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> natural natural progression there. Yeah. Uh, and rents start to go up. You know, people who like uh, artistic environment move in and uh, they, they they can afford to fix up their places and uh, they're not living in lofts anymore. If they are lofts, they've been converted and wired and indoor plumbing and all this stuff. Uh, real estate prices go up. Artists and writers can't afford to live there anymore. The tour buses mean that maybe they're not interested in living there anymore anyway. Uh, so in New Orleans, uh, uh, what has happened, and it continues to happen, is folks move down river. I mean, the, any of your listeners who know New Orleans will know that just down river from the French Quarter is an area called the Marigny, uh which is where all the good music is these days. I mean, in, in the quarter, you can get sort of fossilized Dixieland uh, and a lot of drunk tourists, but if you want to, you want to hear serious music, you go go down river to the Marigny. And that was a bohemian place until recently, although the same process happened. That, 
mm-hmm. prices went up. Uh, a lot of people moved in who weren't artists, and, and, and now the now the hot area in New Orleans is just downriver from that. The area called Bywater. Huh. It's got all kinds of galleries and hot new coffee shops and restaurants. So you can, you can see it burning like a fire. Yeah, just yeah you can it. exactly. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't always move, you know, to a contiguous neighborhood, but it did in New Orleans. Yeah. But, in London, uh, Chelsea used to be full of Bohemians. I sure. mean, in the 19th century, it's now full of Russians. You know? Yeah. Well, Russian oligarchs and their mistresses. <laughs> at, at exactly. Yeah. North I, I've got a friend who lives near there. So. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's, uh, what, um, what was Dixie about this Bohemia? I mean, this I should say to listeners, I mean, this is John Shelton Reed I'm talking to. He's the guy that talked about what's the South. I mean, this is, I used to say that I think you've said to me and many other times that you've had one idea in your in your life. Uh, and it was like the what the South is, uh, yeah. or how to answer that question. Uh, but well, what Southerners are really? What yeah, Southerners uh, are? Yeah, yeah. I'm a sociologist rather than a geographer, although I hang out with geographers. But uh, yeah. uh, no, I, my my notion that I spent most of my career investigating is that Southerners, in many ways, are like uh, an ethnic group. Groups we more often think of as ethnic. So like that silly. raises all sorts of questions about identity and stereotyping and social yep. boundaries and all this sociological stuff. And the answers are interesting because quite often they are like uh, Italian Americans or uh, uh, Jewish Americans, uh, and sometimes they're not. And when they're not, it's interesting too. Yep. So anyhow, that's my one idea. Get, getting back to Dixie Bohemia. Yeah. So th- what's Dixie about this Bohemia? How did, how did they self-identify or? As right. Uh, well, a lot of the uh, members of this group were Southern, and the, but the ones that weren't uh, largely accommodated themselves to the fact that they were in the Deep South. You know, uh, New Orleans is different, but uh, not in the 1920s, it, it was not particularly different in matters of race relations. I mean, it was a Jim Crow society. So uh, this group I'm writing about was entirely white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were black artists and poets across town at Dillard University, but there was absolutely no communication across racial lines, as far as I know. Um, and, uh, and, and and it's what's interesting about that is, as you've made clear, there's a, a third of the group is uh, female. Uh, women are a third of the group. Yeah. Um, a great many of them are openly gay, and that yeah. that doesn't seem to bother anybody in the slightest. No. Uh, but there, it is a lily white Southern group uh, of but of Yankees and. Southerners are very Yeah, safe. I mean, uh, Lafar- Oliver Lafarge, we mentioned earlier, came from a New England family, distinguished New England family. With well, a name and, like Oliver uh, Hazard Perry Lafarge. <laughs> Lafarge, yeah. Uh, yeah, that one. Um, and, and, you know, he, he said, he wrote that his Southern friends, you know, asked him what he thought about race relations. <laughs> you know, and he said that, well, he confessed that he was from the New England abolitionist tradition, but uh, that he uh, was... Uh, trying to keep an open mind and, and look around him and, and learn that he'd only arrived. And that he said that was a perfectly satisfactory answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I expect it was. I mean, you know, if you started preaching on, on the subject of race relations, you had to find some new friends in those, that time and place, I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, they either supported, many of them with unquestionably, and enthusiastically supported the prevailing uh, racial norms, or they acquiesced in them. Uh, like like uh, Lafarge just kept their mouths shut. And, you know, that, that's not surprising. You know, we can regret it, but uh, 
given the time and place, it, 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 was either, it was that or nothing. You're going to have a Bohemia. It's going to be all white in New Orleans in 1926. Yep. That's how it is. Yep. Um, why oh, excuse me. One, one other thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a, a peculiar uh, aspect of this was they all had servants. I mean, Faulkner and Spratling had a cook. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and these artists and writers weren't so impecunious that they couldn't afford help. <laughs> it, I think that's an unusual aspect of this really I mean, this is not this is not part of La Bohème. I mean, this no, is no, no, no. Having servants. I mean, this is pretty incredible. Where labor is so cheap, you can have a servant. Yeah. Um, why New Orleans? Why? I mean, this is always this is a perennial question in Southern history. Sure. Uh, what what makes how is New Orleans different from all other places? What continues right. to keep well, it different? Well, uh, I've spent a chapter or so on that. It's uh, partly it's, it's this uh, fact that it's a port city with a large immigrant population. I've already talked about the Italians, um, but it also had large. Uh, I talk about the importance of the uh, Jewish population in New Orleans, which was. Quite large. I mean, New Orleans was a big city in southern terms. I mean, it, it, a lot of things it had in common with Charleston, but Charleston was much smaller. So, uh, you know, there just weren't as many Jews. There weren't as many gay men. Yeah. <laughs> there certainly weren't as many Italians there, in Charleston. Not as many rich people, probably. I mean, uh, probably on, not. Probably no, and, 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 you know, I've talked about Charleston and Nashville as, as other places where something like this might have happened. And Charleston did indeed have uh, some serious uh, painters and visual art at the same time here. And Nashville had a literary scene in its own little magazine. Sure. Uh, but you know, New Orleans was the, the obvious, obvious place for this. Uh, I, the Jewish population was very supportive. I think a half dozen or so of the uh, 40-some-odd uh, famous Creoles were Jewish. Yeah, they were, they but, were, they were uh, not segregated by uh, Jewishness or no, no, and, and and other the Jewish families in, in town supported uh, artistic things like the opera and the arts and crafts club and the, and the little theater. So I mean that that was uh, that was interesting because they uh, I speculated this sort of throwaway line that uh, because they were excluded and they were from the elite uh, Mardi Gras crews. Oh, yes. uh, they spent their money instead of uh, costumes and balls and whatnot uh, associated with Mardi Gras. They spent it on cultural institutions. And if you look at the ads of the Double Dealer, for example, uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Jewish merchants are vastly overrepresented. Maybe half of the ads in there are from uh, Jewish merchants and professional people. So uh, that's important. Uh, it was very tolerant on the subject, of, as you mentioned, of, of uh, gay men, and a number of these folks were were that. And uh, was never, you know, there's no place in the United States where it was comfortable in 1924. <laughs> but right. some places more comfortable than others, and this was one of them. Yeah, we had to put New York and New Orleans at the top of the list, probably. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, I don't know what was going on in San Francisco at the time, but right. uh, uh, anyhow, that's... Uh, yeah, and, and as also you point out, it's easier to get liquor in New Orleans. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, liquor uh, to this crowd was what marijuana was to a, a later generation of Bohemians. You know, it's, yeah. uh, it, it, it's what you have at parties, and it's it's illegal, sure, but it's easy to get, and it kind of draws a line around the circle. You know, if you're not yeah. drinking, you're not part of this crowd. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, and it's, and in a way, you kind of con- one of the things you conclude on is that in a way, the greatest success 
of the social circle and of the and the people associated with the institutions who are not part of the social circle was to facilitate the end of of the French well to facilitate the restoration of the French Quarter, which both saved it but also ended the Bohemia. Yeah, uh, you know that was an accomplishment. Uh, you had this strange coalition uh, of Bohemians uh, who wanted to save the quarter because it was picturesque and a place where they could live their Bohemian life, so they didn't want it bulldozed. And society ladies uh, who didn't want it bulldozed either because it was a sign of uh, New Orleans's uh, gracious uh, uh, historic past. And, and so they came together uh, to, to form things like uh, uh, historic I forget what it was called, but something like the Historic New Orleans Commission. Uh, and they got laws passed and ordinances passed to protect some of these buildings, and they mobilized to protect the individual buildings when they were threatened with destruction. Um, and there was a fault line there that I write about, but it never really opened up. Uh, the society ladies, the uptown ladies, uh, they wanted to bring the quarter back to its antebellum splendor. So they were interested in cleaning it up, uh, basically getting rid of the uh, uh, squalor. Uh, you know, uh, Italian garlic merchant in a shed on the street, that, that was not part of their vision of, the, uh, <laughs> uh, of what the quarter ought to be. Uh, but uh, the Bohemians, on the other hand, kind of liked it, uh, ramshackle and, and you know, uh, laundry hanging on the porches and uh, it, 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 it it was, you know, it was real. It was, it was yeah. European. It felt like Palermo, and, yeah. and it's authentic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you could have this exotic experience without uh, without leaving the country. Yeah. Uh, so the two didn't exactly see eye to eye, but the big issue of the time was whether the quarter was going to be preserved or destroyed, and they certainly agreed on that. Yeah. Um, we just have a few more minutes uh, left. I wanted to. Um, ask in closing, you've committed numerous acts of historical sociology in your lifetime. Yeah. Uh, some of so, of some of which you had a license to do. Um, what sets, uh, for a podcast called Historical Thinking, what sets historical sociology apart from history, as you, as you as sociologists understand it? Well, I don't see a lot of distinctions. There's a considerable overlap, I think, between historical sociology and social history. Um, I you know, the methods are very much the same. I mean, I spent time in archives reading, you know, letters and <clears throat> documents and theater programs and stuff like that. Uh, the methods are pr pretty much the same. The questions may be slightly different. I mean, all this uh, stuff I went on about social circles and institutions. I mean, some some uh, historians talk that way, but I think they learned it from us. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, what comes to my mind it, it, when I look at this crowd, is is I'm, I'm, I'm certainly less interested in the quality of the stuff they turned out than a uh, cultural historian would be. I mean, mm -hmm. you ask, were these good novels that they were writing? Were these good paintings they were painting? Uh, I'm in really no position to say, but I, I, I... That's not part of your story. No, it's not. I, I read people who are in a position to say and, and take their word for it, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and it's, it's not particularly important anyway, because I'm, I'm curious about the
uh, how that's similar to other bohemians. But these, I think, are, are sociological questions, although other people might well ask them, too. I hope other people do, because if nobody else is interested in them, no one's going to read this book. <laughs> what? Uh, finally, let me ask you a, a question. I can ask you this question. You can answer it, because you're emeritus now. So, yes. Uh, you know, since the 70s, since uh, basically historians started reading Clifford Geertz um, and reading the historians who read Clifford Geertz, um, uh, cultural history has, is, has basically in many ways a branch of anthropology. Certainly we take anthropological theory has been tremendously, I, I can't think of anything more important to the last 25 years of historical uh, thinking. Um, my, I, my own personal inclinations are often towards sociology. I guess that's why I ended up reading you. Um, but why, what should historians, what do you think they should be learning from sociologists these days? What sort of, what sort of, how, how should our thinking be shaped by sociology? Oh, well, you, you <laughs> I know, I know, that's all. It's a, and do that in two minutes, please. Yeah, well, you no, know, you mentioned that I'm emeritus, so, uh, uh, like many old-timers, I think the thing has kind of gone to hell since my day. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. uh, you know, if you look at the programs of uh, sociological meetings, the, the number of papers that might be of interest outside the discipline are, are, are very small. Uh, I actually gave a presidential address to the Southern Sociological Society about this uh, <laughs> some years back, lamenting that we were more and more writing just for one another, and not even for people in uh, the disciplines, you know, let alone for the general public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can look at the titles of journal articles from the 1950s, and you read stuff, that, the kind of stuff that got me interested in sociology in the first place, the interesting questions. You, know? you read them today, and it's either... Uh, uh, arcanely uh, methodological, you know, mathematical, uh, difficult to understand, almost like physics, you know, or it's it's stuff like what's going on in in, uh, the humanities, you know, it's uh, theoretical stuff, and here I do start sounding like an old timer, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's uh, basically ideological I'm, so I don't look uh, to sociology as it is exists today for much that's of use to you, because I don't either. <laughs> uh, historical stuff, uh, Weber and Durkheim, Marx, for that matter, um, the stuff they're worth worth reading and learning from. But, uh, yeah. Go, so go back to go go back to Weber, Durkheim, Marx, and. Yeah, it's the classics, yeah. and and, and there, there's stuff from the 50s and 60s that's worth reading, too. Robert Merton is good. Talking Parsons, on the other hand, you can forget about him. He's vanished. <laughs> All right. Well, John, thanks so much for talking with me today. Oh, Al, thank you for letting me run my mouth. Uh, I hate to, hate to end on a down note like that. But. Well, you know, we'll talk again soon, and it'll be happier because a uh, future podcast will be talking with you and, and the smart person in the family, your wife, Dale, uh, about uh, barbecue. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that's be good. All right, take care. Thanks a lot, Al. Bye. Right, bye-bye. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps the WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.